Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. In honor of Pride Month, the Startup Canada podcast network is celebrating the contributions and achievements of LGBT plus entrepreneurs. Join us as we chat with LGBT plus founders and support organizations who are challenging the status quo to build a more inclusive world. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary listeners, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. In the month of June, in celebration of Pride Month, the Startup Canada podcast network will celebrate the contributions and achievements of LGBT plus entrepreneurs to the Canadian economy. This month on the Startup Canada podcast, join us as we chat with LGBT plus founders and support organizations who are challenging the status quo to build a more inclusive world. Today on the show, we're thrilled to have Jad Jaber. Dr. Jad Jaber lectures in the fields of queer theory and gender. He has implemented workshops with leading equity and diversity nonprofit organizations on queer marginalized migrant healing. Jad is the founder of the Marginalized Majority, a nonprofit organization focused on furthering education through developing and implementing programs tailored for marginalized LGBTQ2 people in Canada. Jad's postdoctorate work focused on feminist economics, which falls in line with his women economic empowerment work with major international organizations such as the World Bank. Issues that pertain to queer migrants include intergenerational trauma, internalized homophobia, psycho-emotional healing, language barriers, and racism within queer culture. Jad is currently in the board of directors of Pride Toronto. He's also a member of the Toronto City LGBTQ Plus Advisory Board Council. And he's also the published author of Queer Arab Martyr and the paper Queer Arab Language. Jad, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rick. Very excited to be here. Very excited to have you. Uh, social entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs. Uh, I think that anyone who takes on a mission to change the world and doesn't have the resources they ha they need to do it by themselves is an entrepreneur and so i want to get into the, the into your cultural journey your entrepreneurial journey but first of all our mm -hmm. our listeners are busy entrepreneurs and they like to know that they're going to get something out of a out of a podcast that they listen to so let's let them know what they're likely to learn more about. So what are the top piece of advice that you'd like, that you hope that our listeners will take away from this conversation? Great. So the first thing I would say is um, be resilient, even though resilience 
has been used a lot against marginalized LGBTQ plus people to excuse a wide array of behavior by describing them as resilient. Those folks can handle it. Those folks are resilient. And I tell you to be resilient, um, but at the same time, stay well-resourced. Because when we work with the community, our community has already missed out on a lot of healing. So if you're not a person that is well-healed and well-resourced, who is working with the committee, especially when it comes to socially focused projects, then you're not going to be able to complete what you plan to do. Also, I would advise that folks be extremely community responsive. So the way we started Marginalizing Majority primarily is through six community consultations with BIPOC, Arab, immigrant, indigenous folks. It was um, really extremely community responsive and we built up from the words of the community from zero that was our major platform and we built upwards and finally my last piece of advice is at some point be aware that you have to shift from the operational and the logistics as an entrepreneur at first you have to focus on the quality of your service deliverables so you're pretty much entrenched in the operational stuff and the logistics but at some point, you need to reshuffle and you need to move back to the vision, you need to move back to the strategy, you need to move back to governance. And for you to be able to do that, that's the real mastery is, is how to create that shift. So I hope these three things were helpful. Wow, that's, that, that's beautiful and very well articulated. I, I'm intrigued by that, that first line that you said about how the word resilient has been used against people by saying, hey, essentially saying they're, they're used to suffering. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and how that's, that, that's occurred in, in, in your life experience? Sure. So primarily, you know, that looking at folks being resilient in an inequitable way and looking at folks being more marginalized for being resilient can be seen within the black community, can be seen within the indigenous community, um, can be seen... Um, with the indigenous community, for example, in Canada, it goes back to as, 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 as old as um, the, the correctional schooling systems which had occurred um, in Canada. So, and, and, and generally folks that were in the margins were always seen as folks that can handle more, that can, um, that, that can handle more um, inequity and will always um, arise from it. In a sense, as you said, they're used to it. Um, and for me personally, uh, I, I had to be extremely resilient because I arrived to Toronto um, almost less than two years ago, a year and a few months ago, and I arrived to um, an economic crisis that was happening in my country, but also to almost the beginning of the COVID pandemic in, in, in Canada. So I had to pull up my resilience. I had to be very strong. I had to, um, you know, make myself a, a, a if you want violently resilience, and this is why I go back when I said that immediately to the point of resourcing yourself, because with becoming this resilient, you also can become, in a sense, somewhat um, unaccepting to, uh, to love and to compassion and to empathy. Um, you, have to, you have to reconnect, you have to reheal yourself in order to be able to be resilient, but at the same time, maintain your empathy. Wow. Empathy and resilience. And even in tough times, they're the solution, even though 
I guess they're used against us at times. Tell me about marginalized majority. First of all, I love the name. It sort of flips the script on on mm-hmm. people. Uh, th- yeah. Tell me about the message behind the name and then tell me about the journey to creating this organization and what it does. Governmental records does not, isn't it really backed up by facts? Because primarily, if it is a minority, it's mostly invisible and it's not visible. We are not seen. And more importantly, statistically and scientifically, marginalized folks are not the minority. Between folks who have special abilities and folks who are racialized and folks who represent themselves as, as culturally bodied and folks from other generations, so many other different intersectional inequalities, you discovered that who has been mar- marginalized is actually the majority, especially within the queer community. And the real minority is that which is a very privileged minority, which generally does get that, that, that stronger voice, that bigger representation. And this is why I thought, you know what, I will call this organization the marginalized majority. Do people get it? Or do you have to explain it? Yes, time? they do. <laughs> yes, they do. They do. Actually, something, you know, something in- intuitively makes people feel that, that, oh, yes, wait for a second. The marginalized is, is, are, are mostly the majority. So it's an aha moment just by its own name, as you mentioned. Yeah, fantastic. So, so tell me about the organization. What, what, what is it that, you, that, 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 that it was created to do? Absolutely. So the organization was created to, create, to, to, to put out safe spaces, most importantly, safe spaces that were consistent. So the biggest problem with our queer community is when you are seeking mental health, when you are seeking mental support, when you are seeking to be healed, there are no resources. You might find a few amazing nonprofits who are doing great work and we give them credit, such as the 519 and Rainbow Railroad and Glad Day Library. But these organizations are already under-resourced. And if there were 60 more of them, we would still be needing more to support our queer community. And to be so, clear, those, so, are, those are Toronto organizations. So 100%. Um, so, 100%. you know, they're... they're they they have counterparts across the country, but they're probably not as well resourced as the ones in Toronto. Hundred percent. So as I said, you know they're trying their best, and they're already spread really thin. And for newcoming immigrants and for marginalized queer folks who don't have money to dish on a therapist, and who don't have their families to support them, and who don't have all these privileges, where are they? If they feel suicidal, or if they feel sad, or if they feel depressive, or if they feel anxious, or if they feel alone. Where do they go? And so at some point with my own journey, with me trying to reach out these facilities, with me trying to, I noticed that with me trying to reach out for this type of care, I noticed that there was a major, major vacuum. So because of that, I started to implement workshops within the 519, within ASAP as well for Southeast Asian Alliance and within, a Glad Day library, I started to implement workshops to see how much does this community really need to talk about things outside, you know, Justin Bieber and outside LGBTQ plus regular mainstream culture. How much do we really need to talk about the things that I mentioned before, such as intergenerational trauma, such as internalized homophobia, such as the issues of healing, such as racism. 
And when I started to put these workshops, I'm like, oh my God, there's a major need for this. People need this as the same way they need to find their tribe, the same way they need to find their family. They need folks to discuss these deep things with, and they need the proper people to facilitate and moder- moderate these types of spaces. Um, so from that concept, I decided to launch Marginalized Majority. Um, I do have to tell you, Rick, when I launched, and I don't know if this question is is coming up, but when I launched it, I was at a very, very difficult time on my life, in my life. Um, and what really triggered the, 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 the exact launching of Marginalized Majority, and this is something that I do have to say, is the unfortunate death of Sara Higazi in Toronto. And Sara Higazi was a very well-known LGBTQ plus um, uh, uh, activist who had raised the rainbow flag in Egypt and was jailed in Egypt and um, was, 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 was violated in Egypt and then came to Toronto like many, many, many queer immigrant folks that I know in order to find that safety. But like many queer folks that I know, when you run away and when you leave home, when you leave your culture and you find yourself in new weather, in a new community without any familiar taste, even the language that's being used, even the nonverbal language that's being used is culturally alienating. All these things, suddenly you feel a sense of deep, deep, deep loneliness. And when you're sinking in that way and you're looking for resources and you're Arab, you're Jamaican, you're Southeast Asian, you're not a, you're, you're not a predominantly, you know, a privileged or, or well, well-resourced person, um, you end up extremely isolated. And, and so, unfortunately, Sara Hegazi committed suicide in Toronto after coming here as an asylum seeker. And when Sara, when Sara passed away, I kept thinking, oh my God, if I don't do something right here, right now, if I don't create these spaces that people were, that, that Arab mothers were coming and hugging me afterwards, telling me, thank you, I've now accepted my daughters, that, that racialized folks were, 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 were gaining resources and, and books and articles to deal with their intergenerational tra- trauma. If, if I wasn't creating those spaces, then bad things might happen to those people that are around me and to me, to me as well. And this is how, why I, I decided to, you know, from nothing, honestly, Rick, uh, from no resource, not a single dollar, I just decided to, I'm like, I need to first incorporate this in organization. I know my heart, what the name is. I know in my heart what the vision is behind it. I've tested out the service deliverables and they were successful. Now. I need to incorporate. And even that by itself as a newcoming immigrant was a, was, what was a, was a pitless vacuum. You know, I just, yeah, just, just incorporating imagine, it, just incorporating, like imagine, because again, you know, when you go online and, and this takes me back to the gravity of, of not really understanding newcoming immig- immigrants, when you go online and you're looking at websites and people who have any type of learning disability, people who have any type of, of intercultural um, misinterpretations, when, when you're looking at the one, two, three, four of how to incorporate an organization, that's not easy. 
that is not easy for a new coming immigrant, for a person with language barriers, for a person with disability barriers. These, these, these websites, these, this online information is, is, is not targeted towards people that are marginalized, that, that do face these barriers. So for me, trying to incorporate an orga- organization was eventually, and I, and I give this advice for entrepreneurs, I had to, again, go back to my community. I had to go back to my grassroots power. I had to go on Facebook and go online and go on LinkedIn and reach out to people. Hey, do I know any marginalized or BIPOC or Arab lawyers that would give me a few hours to help me incorporate this organization? And from one person to the other, one person to the other, I finally found somebody who was able to help me. And even with that, I had to be so patient. This person was nine years my junior and with, with all due respect, and I thank him right now again for doing that, but that person at some point was like, hey, you know, I'm, I want to take a shower. Would you mind if you wait till 11.20? Hey, I wanna have a glass of tea, would you? So within that process alone, I had to be very prideless, very shameless. I had to be very resilient. I had to not think, well, you know, I've already worked for nine years. I have a postdoctorate. No, I had to think you're, you're starting from zero. And so you need whatever you can get. And so be silent and learn. And that's what I had to do. This goes right back to your comment about resilience, doesn't it? Because I've been in the entrepreneurship game a long time as an, as an entrepreneur and as a journalist writing about it. And we often see the barriers as part of the price of admission that you get over these things, you, you master the paperwork um, in order to compete, in order to qualify to compete. And, and you're opening my eyes to a problem that shamefully I wasn't really aware of, which is just how, how difficult this barrier is for literate, empowered people with resources mm-hmm. and, and how much and how un, impassable they are for those who lack those resources, who lack the connections, who lack the education or have the uh, language or learning barriers that, 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 that you cited. 100%. So with, as a society, we need to do a much better job. Now, that's not, your, that, that's not your mission, but it's certainly one of the lessons I'm taking away from this. That's absolutely true, Rick, 100%. And, you know, I love, what, I love that sentence that you said, barriers, you know, as, as a price of admission. And, you know, the thing is for newcoming immigrants and for even, you know, some people have been here for four or five years and they still consider themselves newcoming immigrants. And that's important to say. So for, for newcoming immigrants, um, when, when you're told that, that oh, oh, that's not the way we write our resume in Toronto. Well, well I, I didn't know that. And, or, or you're told something or, you know, you shouldn't put this in the front part of your resume. People will be unattracted by it. I didn't know that. Or you're told something that, you know, this is not a, uh, within, within this, even the language, even, even weaponizing yourself with the language of intersectional inequality and the language of equity and diversity, for you to be able to play this game and for you to be able to go up even weaponizing yourself with language is, is not told to newcoming immigrants. No one tells them, hey, you know, you, you need to know, you need to be aware of, of, of gender on a spectrum. You need, to bear, you need to be aware of what non-binary is. You need to be aware of how to use your pronouns in an office, in a corporate setting, or else people will not take, who is saying this to newcoming immigrants? Who is, who is, who is giving this type of, of, of very culturally nuanced and sometimes, you know, 
implicit advice to new coming immigrants. And, and again, this goes back to the purpose of marginalized majority. So the purpose of marginalized majority was simply accessible education. What we want to do is create this digital university, this, this, this digital forum where folks who are interested in anything LGBTQ, whether you're talking about um, Muslim folks of faith going through conversion therapy, whether you're talking about um, Jamaican newcoming immigrants with, with disabilities, whether you're talking about uh, internalized shame for Canadians that have been here for 30 and 40 years, what, whatever you're, whether you're talking about um, two-spirit understanding of indigenous folks, um, whatever you're talking about, this is what marginalized majority has done. And actually, Rick, very proudly, if people go on our Instagram account, for the past six months, we have covered such a wide range of these subjects. And we have spoken about um, LGBTQ rights in North Africa to uh, gender creation on TikTok for young folks, how they're creating their own gender through TikTok. We are covering everything. And not just that, we're covering it from firsthand experiences. So we highlight marginalized people, we highlight their voices. And a portion of the process of the workshops is the capacity building that we do with these folks, with us and with them. We, we, we do this capacity building to erase the shame in telling their truth and in order to educate ourselves and the community even more. So it's a full looping circle. Within that, we also have a healing conduit. We have a healing system. So um, yeah, at the end of the day, we focus on emotions. We focus on healing. We focus on education. And, 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 and we are community responsive. If today our community says, hey, we need to do six workshops on Black Lives Matter for, for May, we will be like, bring it on. Let's bring on those workshops. Let's create the capacity for them. Obviously, the marginalized majority is taking on some really ambitious challenges. What is the uh, business plan underneath it? Where do you get the resources you need to do this kind of work? Thank you, Rick. That's a great question. So first of all, um, that our, our business model, which relates directly to our value proposition, is, is, is primarily focused on... Um, government funding. We, because of our capacity building and community building, and because of our focus on new coming immigrant healing, we do hope that we do gain and we do attain um, government and grants, government funding and grants. And I want to really bring a very important barrier here to new coming organizations who are led by marginalized folks, is that part of this process is finding a grant writer. And grant writers are very expensive. Also, grant writers are mostly, and I'm gonna say this, privileged folks who are not marginalized. And in accessing this resource alone for a new coming organization, there are many barriers. There are many barriers. For example, I try to educate myself through taking a course in Charity Village on grant writing. I found that I could not be learning and operating and directing, managing this organization. So I removed myself from that. When trying to find grant writers, I found out they were far too expensive. And to top it up, I also find out that grant writers are usually hired by organizations, which anyways always get these type of fundings. So there is a sense 
a fight or a, um, a desperation for so, newcoming organizations to crack through into this. Go ahead, Rick. Right. Sorry, I was just going to say, it's a risk for you because you have no track record of getting grants, so you don't know if you're you. investing in the right resource or not. 100%. We also, also, as much as I've written grants in the Middle East for the World Bank and for Save the Children, the process of grant writing for the Canadian government for Ontario is very, very different. And again, you have people here that have been doing it for 10, 15 years that are known as well, that are known as specific grant writers, you know, that, that, that are known that, well, if you want your grant to win, then hire this grant writer or work with this grant writer. And so, you know, I already have written three grants and, and, and given them in. But again, imagine the type of resources and how much, how much mental and emotional energy it has to take for and and a newcoming immigrant to sit and type a grant without any any type of of support and any type of real support. Um, so yes, other than this, um, other than this, Rick, uh, you know. So this is for our government grant grants. We also um, hopefully rely on research grants because at the end of the day, I am a postdoctorate research, and very proudly, one of our board members, Dr. Rila Kahil is also a postdoctorate researcher at UFT and is also leading multiple researches in Canada for newcoming immigrants that pertain to the Syrian community. So I'm, I'm very proud that within our organization, we have a massive research capacity um, and that we do hope that slowly but surely we, you know, already we are finalizing a peer reviewed publication and we do hope that, you know, we, we, we become more apt in applying for research grants. Um, which also links directly, of course, into advocacy and evidence-based policy creation. At the end of the day, real, real influence happens in having that evidence-based policy and, uh, sorry, evidence-based research, excuse me, and really influence policy and, 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 and pushing forward um, for those that are uh, leading in policy formation, sending a lot of emails, sending a lot of letters, saying, hey, we've published this, hey, we've been working on this, hey, we've done these six focus groups, hey, listen to our, um, listen to our best practices, and uh, yeah, and, 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 and this is something that I've seen other nonprofit organizations, um, you know, gain more autonomy and power doing that. Right. Have you found any organizations that are able to understand your dilemma and help you with it in terms of accessing the grant or other assistance systems that are out there? Are there any intermediaries doing this work to help connect you? Honestly, we, we didn't find any and there aren't. And, you know, the, the, the current legal ED and the current, you know, um, the, the head of the legal department of the 519, which is Justin Khan, is also, is also our board member. So, um, you know, we, we, we do know that, 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 you know, if, if, if there were resources around um, that, 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 that we could have been supported with, especially at that time, um, we would have found them. And, and if there are, you know, after this point, after this podcast going, then please reach out to us because we do need support in terms of grant writing. Right. Um, but it, it, it sounds like there's a hole in our system and that that needs to be addressed. So uh, I'll be looking into it anyway. Um, interesting stuff. If 
you get some of the support that, 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 that you want and need. What are your hopes for marginalized majority? Where, what would you like to see this organization doing in four or five years? My first hope, Rick, is to break this cultural precedent that exists in Canada for, as it's called, non-paid volunteer work. You know, I have seen, I have seen CEOs of major Canadian organizations pride themselves and tell me, oh, you're feeling guilty about having volunteers work for four hours? Oh, honey, I've had volunteers work up to 70K worth of free work. I've seen CEOs and I've seen people show off, showing off how much folks have put in unpaid volunteer work. And that is painful for newcoming immigrants and for people, again, who have been here, who are hustling. When you're telling them, go ahead and give me, you know, 72 hours or, 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 or so many hours of your week um, for unpaid volunteer work, that is, that is detrimental for them, especially in terms of them finding employment. So the first thing I want to do, my first vision for the organization is paying people that are working, is paying, paying those that have, that, 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 have, that have helped me build this, this amazing entity right now, which is growing and which, which many people are looking to partner up with us. So that's the first thing I would do. As for the vision of the organization, Rick, I, I would love for this to really be an intersectional, educational, accessible university. I would love for us in five years to be known as a platform like TEDx, like, you know, like TED Education, like these major education platforms, but specifically for queer folks and more importantly, specifically for marginalized queer folks. So whether you want to hear about, you know, what the black community in Roma and Milan and Italy have been doing for the past 40 years, whether you want to hear what non-binary hijras are, or what trans folks are doing in India, whether you want to hear what, and again, this is the information and the, the education we have already been disseminating. Um, so this is my vision for the organization is I want folks to invest in us. I want folks to see us for the accessible knowledge that we're creating. And I want folks to see that everyone else doing this is outsourcing. They are hiring a professor in this. They're, hiring, they're not, we are creating our own content. We are a group of 15 220 marginalized, extremely intelligent, extremely well-resourced folks. And we are creating content and we're inviting folks from the community to create content with us. So, um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. That's, that's, re that, that's a really exciting uh, ambition and challenge that you've set for yourself. Is, can the private sector help in any way? Are there, are, are there corporations that might be interested in sponsoring this? Or maybe, you know, getting workshops in their own organizations to help them become more sensitive to all these issues? Or do you have the same accessibility problem there? Everything takes time to establish. No, actually, this is the good news is, you know, part of the business plan that, you know, primarily our business plan wants to focus on government and grants, on government funding and grants. But another part of our business plan is what we called our membership B strategy. So everything you've heard till now is part of our membership A strategy. All these workshops, everything you see on Instagram, everything you see on our social media is part of membership A and our membership A, it will always be our focus. Membership A is this educational intersectional university where everybody who's a member from around the world will get access to buy to multilingual, multilingual education um, that, that is very culturally nuanced. 
But from the beginning, as part of the strategy of this organization, we started to focus on membership B. And what we do in membership B is we do a knowledge sharing session. We implement knowledge sharing session for other nonprofits and for other private organizations that are working in equity and diversity. And we've actually just signed um, a contract with a very well-known um, organization that is a um, that's, that, 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 that's, that has a massive outreach. And what we are doing is we are training them on these best practices, on how we, on how we flattened out our organizational structure, on how we incorporated indigenous wisdom into a generally corporate hierarchy, on how we changed the language of our organizational structure so that not a single um, term includes any inherent form of power, on how we became community responsive, on how we did the six workshops, on how we did our gender sensitivity training. So we've done a lot of things, and, and just one more thing, on how we integrated a healing system into our human resources strategy. So we have really, this organization does not tokenize people. It's not telling people, hey, we've been here for 20 years, we're hierarchical, this is, this is our invisible barrier. But hey, come in, come in black folks, come in indigenous folks, come into a structure that is not created for you, that's not inviting for you, that's not been built to respect you. That's not what we're doing. We're not tokenizing folks. We are building a structure from the beginning that, that is taking into consideration what it's like to feel in your body the anxiety of being uh, a black man that has been marginalized. That's taking into consideration what it's like to, to, to be called, to, to have been told that this director or this leader is telling you this, or, you know, we are taking into consideration every single form of power and, and, and we're building from the community, from the threads of equity upwards. And that sounds like it's a, it, that could be a real fruitful side to, 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 to your activities. Uh, we're hearing so many big companies say that, you know, there's a scarcity of talent, they can't get the help they need, and mm -hmm. that they're reaching out, that they're reaching out to the indigenous community, that they're reaching out to, uh, to, 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 to newcomers. So maybe they are, maybe they're not, but you can certainly, maybe they don't know how to. So, so, so you certainly have uh, the ability to, 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 to help them get started and if, if they're serious about it. Yeah, you, you know, a lot of these organizations now that are getting equity and diversity training, I want them to be aware of who are they getting their equity and diversity from? Has it been a 30-year-old or 40-year-old organization that's been in Canada that has a predominantly all-white board staff and non-racialized people in senior positions? Is this who is giving you your anti-black racism training? Is this the organization that's giving you your equity training? Because if it is, then there's something wrong happening there. There's, there's, you know, you need to go. You need to be going back to grassroots indigenous organizations for your indigenous sensitivity training. You need to be going to grassroots black-led organizations for your anti-black racism. You need to be going to grassroots organizations like us who are trying to put all these variables and all these knowledge centers together. Yeah, I think yeah. it was on your Twitter feed that I saw the photo of uh, a. a Congress on women's rights in uh, uh -huh. Saudi Arabia, and yes. they were all men in the audience. Hundred percent deciding 100%. women's rights. Hundred percent. Right. right. So, so, so we got to get beyond that in our own country. I, I love what you said because you know many times looking at these boards and being part of you know boards previously. Now there's now since you know the the the, the horrible death of George Floyd and the murder 
of George Floyd. And, and since, you know, the, 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 the waking up, the waking up of, of, of the importance of addressing this, not that it shouldn't have been addressed from a long time ago and not that it hasn't been happening for such a long time ago. But now there's an awareness. Now boards, especially in Canada, are being aware that, wait for a second, we can't be a predominantly white men presenting whiteboard of men saying we work in equity. We need people up there on that level, trickling, trickling equity and inclusivity all the way up from strategy, all the way up from the board. Uh, and again, when, when any person who is not coming into this position and coming into very junior positions and the organization is representing itself as generally equitable, this is where tokenizing is happened. If you are truly equitable, make sure that you don't have any invisible barriers in the organization. Make sure that when someone comes in, they don't look at all your senior corporate hierarchy level, look the same in one thing and everyone below them look the same in another. Make sure that you know you are truly being representative. Beautiful, beautiful. Let me ask you about you. Where do you get this energy? Now, now you're an academic. I read one of, I looked at one of your papers and, and it, it reads very academically to me. Um, and yet you're also, you're also obviously a very practical and energetic entrepreneur, disruptive change maker. Where, where, where does that, where does all that energy and, and, and passion come from? Thank you, Rick. Again, you know, great question. You know, I think it's a mix of, of nature and nurture. Um, you know, my nature is already, I am a, I have always been a person from when I was a kid who would stand up, you know, and say, hey, teacher, you can't just give us one minute bathroom breaks. What if this person, you know, I've, I've always been that person who, you know, gets into trouble and, and who would be sitting on, on, on my balcony and see something happening on the street and rush down and involve myself and, you know, and just, so that is part of my nature. Now, in terms of being nurtured, I had a rough I had a rough upbringing and I had a rough childhood. Um, as, as grateful as I am for the good things that I had, in which is my education, I did grow up a, 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 a very gay man in a very Arab world. This is in know? Lebanon, right? Which is presumably one of the more westernized, more liberal uh, countries in, yeah, in the I Muslim mean, world? Yeah, it, it, it can't really be seen that way. You know, a, a lot of people think that just because, you know, Lebanon was colonialized or, or, or had, a, had a bit of a French background that it means that, um, that, it, that it's more um, equitable towards LGBTQ+. But the truth is that most laws that prohibit queerness in the Arab world actually go back to the French mandate. We didn't have, we didn't have historical laws to prohibit non-binary folks and queer folks these folks just existed in our culture for thousands of years you know when 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 european colonialization came into that part of the middle east and they saw people being representing themselves as non-binary as sexual and you know you're coming from a you're coming from a Victorian tradition. You're coming from a tradition where gentlemen are supposed to behave a certain way. Women are supposed to, you know, what we looked like were, unfortunately, I'm going to say this, what we looked like were savages. So a lot of European colonializers and a lot of this European influence placed the laws in place that prohibited homosexuality, that prohibited things that were seen as, you know, uh, 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 non-heteronormative. And then we as Arabs, and also this happened the same thing in India and Southeast Asia. We then internalized these laws and internalized these homophobia. So, you know, Lebanon 
is, is still staunchly homophobic. Queer people have to be careful. You know, yes, we might have a small queer pub that's hidden, that's been there for 10 years, but that also doesn't mean that Saudi or Kuwait or these staunchly Muslim countries also don't have these queer spaces and queer hubs, but they exist in different ways. Um, so people still get jailed in my country for even saying pro-LGBTQ things on Facebook, um, especially with the recent government system, which is uh, more uh, uh, more conservative and much more corrupt and also much more controlling than previous um than previous systems. So, yeah, you know, um, I grew up in this world. I've been, you know, uh, beaten up by 15 people at once for being queer. I have been, so that's why I tell you, you know, my resilience is not my choice. I I do wish I grew up in a in a lovely backhand garden in Jersey where, you know, my first prom was with a gay man where, where, you know, I was able to kiss or touch my boyfriend, but I wasn't even able to touch my boyfriend in my own home. I would have to run up and close curtains and, you know, and, and that affected even the space for loving, even the space to love someone in that community was limited. So my resilience came from all these barriers and from thankfully, you know, a nature that wants to help, really wants to help. Right. Do you see any ways that the entrepreneurship ecosystem specifically could, could, could be helpful as, as inclusive allies to the LGBTQ community? Yes, absolutely. There needs to be, you know, it's, this, this reminds me, Rick, of, you know, when folks, um, when folks are trying to, let's imagine there are certain senior positions and folks are trying to hire um, very marginalized people uh, like indigenous folks or newcoming Arab immigrants or black folks, and they tell you something like, well, we couldn't find them. Or, well, you know, we, 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 none of them apply to the senior position or none of them have this. No, no, it's not that you couldn't find them. It's that you weren't strategic enough in finding them. It's that, it's, it's, it's that your plan wasn't to find them. So for all these, you know, all these, um, uh, you know, think tanks and all these, up, up, up and coming organizations that want to focus on entrepreneurs and and for also government government think tanks that are trying to think of, on how to allocate a funding for entrepreneurs be strategic in your outreach you know reach out to grassroots folks look at their board look at their staff you know don't take the easiest decision uh, be, be you know Put the effort, if, if you really want to support black businesses and black entrepreneurs, put the effort. If you really want to support indigenous, none of us are easy to find. And there's a reason for that. We're not easy to find because we're underrepresented and because we've been harmed. We've been harmed by mainstream culture. So, so that's what I would say for that, for that question. Wow. <laughs> so in a way, to say, be resilient, be aggressive, make yourself known in a way that's patronizing because people shouldn't have to do that. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, you know, I mean, how else do we break this cycle? 100%. And, you know, one thing that we see now is like, you know, this movement of equity um, that's happening for, for black folks in BLM you know, one thing we see now is that there's an awareness now. Now, marginalized folks 
are now aware. They're aware of how these issues get sensationalized. They're aware of, of how people are brought in tokenistically. They're aware that people are brought into a board for one year without real changes. And, and now we know. And now we don't want that anymore. We, we, we don't want that anymore. We, we don't want to be brought in in a tokenistic fashion. We don't want to give you that one training and leave you. We don't, we, you know, people now know that, that we're here to stay, where, you know, marginalized folks are, are clasping to power. They, and unfortunately, with that, Rick, comes, you know, a bit of the folks that are already in a lot of power. There comes a bit of moving, a bit of shuffling in the status quo. You know, and, 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 and this is where we come back to, you know, shame and unlearning. And this is where we come back to white fragility. And, you know, sometimes simply people in power just need to be told, give up a bit of your power. You need to give up a bit of your power because we can't take more power when this is the pizza. You need to give up a bite of the pizza. And, and you know, and, and, and this is where the difficulty comes. This is where the real difficulty in training and in learning for these organizations comes in is that, yes, you do need to reshuffle your system. You do need to rehire folks. You know, you do need to rethink your, your original concept of equity and diversity. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. Absolutely, absolutely. As we sort of wind up here, I'd like to go back to something you said very early, very early on when I asked, you know, about your advice for entrepreneurs. And you talked about being community responsive. And mm -hmm. on the one hand, that sounds sort of obvious. But on the other hand, um, you know, so many businesses don't listen to their customers <laughs> and they you have to remind no. them. So, so the same applies in all aspects of, uh, of community outreach and business, both. Um, tell me just a little bit about how you've reached out to your community and maybe some of the things that you learned that you didn't expect, which shows why it's so important to do that. Sure, I'll, I'll start with the second portion of the question. Everything that I thought I learned once I did the community consultations, which amounted to a very large sum of people and more than six community consultations, everything I thought I knew had to be reshuffled. You know, when I came in saying, hey, I'm the executive director of this organization, and people are telling me, how are you saying you're, you're coming in with, 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 with flatlining power and you're calling yourself a director and you're telling me what to do? <laughs> you know, how are you, you know, so there are so many things that, that when you speak to the community, when you're really grassroots, there are so many things that you learn. It's not about, I have no doubt that any organization right now that starts creating community consultations and becoming more community responsive, I have no doubt that they will learn new things. The question is, can they change? Can they change in terms of what they know? Because many of these organizations have been cemented into their hierarchy. hierarchy. They've been cemented into these structures. Are they really able to go back and reshuffle and create systems that are really to the bone inclusive, whereby even their selection process, even, even, even their recruitment and the selection process, for example, takes into mind the, 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 the implicit barriers that black folks and Arab folks face that usually, you know, people are like, well, why aren't they on LinkedIn? Well, why aren't they over there? Well, why aren't, why can't we find them in these recruitment, recruiting pools? Because we face barriers. We face barriers that go back to our education, that go back to, 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 to the earliest days that go back to our ancestors, that go back to our, to, to, to our ancestry. So when, when, when you're reshuffling, when you're learning from the community, there's no point in doing community consultations 
if you're not going to go back to your system and break things up and not be afraid to, to, to restructure from point zero. There is no point. More importantly, it. yeah, more importantly, if you're going to be creating community consultations, they need to be safe. And you need to assure the community that you're not, you're not milking them, you're not abusing them, you're not taking them, you're not, you're not just going to... Because, for example, indigenous folks, they've had so many people come up to them and be like, hey, how can we help? Hey, how can we... You know, we and, and many of these actions were not implemented. So if you're going to go for the community, you also have to be very careful. If you're going to start doing community consultations, you need to create safe spaces you need to set out the framework for these consultations in a very clear way so that people don't feel they're being tricked. And you also need to be aware of issues of privacy, of safety, um, especially if you're dealing with marginalized folks. Right. Uh, to me, the whole essence of entrepreneurship is people who are under-resourced, people who don't have power, trying to get heard, to get seen out there, and to be able to create their contribution to society, whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to hear about your experience. I love what you said about, you know, be community responsive, be proactive, get learn learn what you can, but but then commit to change, commit to actually doing yeah. something about it. Go out and break things, as you said, because uh, uh, the the more sensitized we get, the more we realize all of the issues out here, all of the marginalizations, which we did, which speaking as a middle-aged, okay, old white person, um, you know, demographics we weren't aware of, demographics we didn't know were marginalized because they were so marginalized. So it's important to know you're out there doing this kind of work and and, and, and it's important that uh, all of our institutions and people listen, be open, be flexible, be creative, be open yeah. to change. Uh, and congratulations on the work you're doing at the Marginalized Majority Collective. It's, uh, it, it's so such important work. Thank you right. so much, Rick. Thank you. We've been speaking to Jad Jaber, and he's with the Marginalized Majority Collective. How can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your work or maybe want to be able to offer any help they can? Sure. So Marginalized Majority is on Instagram as Marginalized Majority. We're also on Twitter as M Majority. We're also on LinkedIn as Marginalized Majority. Facebook as the Marginalized Majority. We're always looking to expand. We're always looking for more volunteers. We're always looking to you know, bring in people's stories. So even if you have a story to say and you want to represent yourself to the community, we're able to help you in the capacity building of that. When it comes to me personally, as the founder and effluence conduit of Marginalized Majority, you can find me at Jad Jabir on Facebook, or you can also find me on Queer Arabs, Queer Arabs on uh, Twitter and Queer Arabs on Instagram. And thank you so much, Rick, for this great opportunity. And thank you for the work you're doing. It's so important. Chad Jaber, I enjoyed talking to you. And we'll talk to you. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.